Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Uh, good morning. Uh, great, beautiful morning. Yeah, it looks like spring's come early. A little bit nip in the air. I went for a walk around the cross today. It's uh, amazing. I went, oh, I sp- spent an hour walking around uh, King's Cross and Darlinghurst. It's a real village sort of joint. It's pretty interesting. And uh, some interesting characters walking around the place. Lots of personality. Um, anyway, today I've got a special guest this week, a man who shares... My fascination with neuroscience, it's Todd Sampson, CEO of advertising agency Leo Burnett. Um, he spent the last few years investigating film and docu- uh, filming a documentary called Redesign My Brain. Um, that's like a really cool show. Though. I think there's like six episodes being done so far. Of course, you know him from the Gruen Transfer, so he's going to be a really cool, interesting discussion. Um, we're just going to be uh, freestyling it a little bit and uh, just moving all around the place, but um, worthwhile listening to that conversation. This week's top five. I did want to uh, touch on the RBA minutes from the August uh, 4 meeting. I think that's important for us to uh, look at that quickly. Um, I think it's uh, probably fair to say that the uh, the RBA is not sort of uh, focusing too much on what's going on in China. I mean, China's giving us some numbers in terms of their GDP um, whether or not they've been growing or not, they're talking about a 7% growth in GDP in China. Uh, that's down from where it has been, um, but, you know, relative to the rest of the world, it's pretty high, actually. So it, it seems okay. It's moderate. Uh, that seems to be good enough in terms of what's going on, but it is moderate and moderating. In other words, it's slowing. So some countries are a little bit worried about that. Uh, we're not. I'm not. Uh, China's always going to be a great source of uh, pulling resources from Australia and exports from Australia. Whether it's at the same rate it has been doing, that's irrelevant to me to some extent. It just means it's going to take the top off our business, off our own business, that is the Australian economy. In, a, in the United States, the US has returned to moderate growth in the June quarter, which is actually good news um, because, you know, the US can actually build demand as well. And uh, there has been obviously weakness for a long, long, long time. Uh, the United States uh, uh, Reserve Bank governor, their, well, their equivalent, she's talking about put inc- increasing interest rates in the United States. That'll have an impact on the Australian dollar or US dollar, more importantly, which ultimately will create some uh, value for our exporters here if our Aussie dollar continues to fall. But that, that sort of remains to be seen. It may well have already been built into the Aussie dollar. Don't know the answer to that. We'll have to wait and see what happens when they uh, do uh, increase US interest rates towards the end of this calendar year, is what they're talking about. Developments of Greece have uh, sort of appeared to moderate. Uh, seems as though they've built packages which are acceptable to everybody else. So that's that's had an effect in terms of, as I said earlier, moderating volatility. Volatility is an important thing to get right. We don't want too many gyrations and uh, too much movement between the mean. So, uh, you know, Greece settling down, Europe settling down is an important part of what happens in the whole of our world. And that, of course, has influence on what China exports because Europe's a big demand on China. So it's, again, important to us in terms of uh, our, our ultimate trading partners, which have, uh, is for sure is China. Um, the domestic economy is operating slightly, that's the Australian economy, uh, um, operating slightly below um, GDP forecasts um, uh, that have been made by the uh, Reserve Bank and, and obviously by the government. Housing additions remain strong, supported by low interest rates. Um, Clearly, New South uh, Sydney and uh, Melbourne are the highest uh, growth areas, particularly Sydney. Price growth in the other cities are, 
nowhere near what they are in Sydney. Um, and uh, that's actually quite interesting because there seems to be a number of um, interest rate decisions being made by or influenced by the regulator, which have been applied to the banks, which are applied across the board, across Australia. So therefore having an effect across the board in Australia, particularly in the investment housing area. So um, that's going to be interesting to see what a net effect that has. Um, otherwise, you know, the only other thing is inflation. Um, inflation is trading well below the, um, the, the range, 2 to 3%. That's good news for homeowners, I guess, and uh, it's good news, generally speaking, in terms of interest rates. But it's also bad news because it means that aggregate demand is down and there's got to be a reason why aggregate demand is down. But interestingly, it's not because of sentiment, because confidence, the Westpac Consumer Index came out and that's gone up. And uh, Bill Evans is one of the economists in Australia who I I really highly rate, probably I, I rate him the highest of everybody in the country. He does not know or he says he does not have any, anything that he can account for the increase in business confidence, uh, sorry, uh, consumer confidence. But it's a good thing that consumer confidence is high because it is part of the thing that drives aggregate demand ultimately and uh, that should get our GDP and our economy back up into uh, the right spot where we want it to be, around 3%, 3.25% growth year on year. Um, <clears throat> these things are all complex, data-driven, sentiment-driven, behavioural uh, processes which roll out over time. Uh, we can't sit here today and make any decisions on any of this stuff it's all a little bit all over the place, but generally speaking, things are moderate. I think that's a good way to leave it for today. Things are generally speaking moderate. One of the things I want to do today, Jess, is I want to talk to Nick Boris. Um, Nick Boris last week did an assignment for me and uh, you know, it was well received. It was the... Uh, what do you call it, Nick? Parking our wallets or something? Um, that was the headline he gave us. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was well received, and um, and and people still digesting. It was a lot in there. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Nick. You've been talking to me about this for a long time because one of the Nick represents a, the, another generation to me, um, and he's been talking about the uh, social media environment and the power of those people who have lots and lots of followers, and we've just been chatting about this and. And how people monetize that. So, Nick, what are you, what are you, what are your thoughts on this? So, yeah, I, I guess I got thinking about this topic after last week's show, and you know, we're talking about a few of the celebrities that are that are doing this season, Celebrity Apprentice, and their followings on on Twitter and Instagram and the various social media platforms, and how they stack up against traditional media, but also you know those people out there on Instagram and Twitter that have launched their celebrity outside of of you know traditional means via their own um, by their own niches via their own expertise and you know cultivated a following just using the platform alone. Um, I was you know interested to find out that there's a huge disparity between uh, traditional celebrity endorsement, um, traditional media you know i.e. Uh, adver- television advertising, radio advertising, and what these guys that uh, these these newcomers, if you like, are being paid for their efforts um, via the social media landscape. So, you know, so if just, George Clooney does an ad for Nespresso and it appears on Channel Ten. Um, you're, what you're saying is, it's it, he gets paid a fortune. Yeah. So I'll give you some stats. So I mean, I guess the conversation reminded me of an interesting article I read about a company called the Influential Network. They're basically a talent ma- agent, uh, a talent uh, management agency that focus on. Uh, purely on social media influencers, and they put on an event called the Influential House at Coachella last year. And you know they invited, let's say, a hundred um, influencers out to a house in in Las Vegas, just near the, the festival. Um, and over a three day period, they managed to generate 1.1 billion native impressions. Um, so if you you know to give you an analog and compare that, the cost of that, let's just these guys are getting were getting paid on average five to six thousand dollars plus expenses. Um, their pay is roughly about 25% of the total advertising spend. So let's say it's twenty-four dollars to $25,000 um, per head that you need to pay these guys to get to, to get out there. Um, that's about $2.5 million if you multiply it by the 100 guys out there. Um, so they generate $1.1 billion native impressions. If you were to compare that to, say, a big TV event, um, let's say the Super Bowl, um, the myth out there, by the way, is that the Super Bowl gets about a billion 
viewers worldwide. That's actually false. It was about 104. They, they syndicate to about 200 countries with a, uh, a potential audience of a billion, but their actual viewership last year was 114 million. So if you were to... Sorry, what's a native impression? What is that? A native impression is an ad that isn't disruptive to the native environment. So... If I'm, example, on a, if I'm on a website and I get a pop-up, that's obviously disruptive to my viewing of the website. However, if I'm on Dad's Instagram account and he's spruiking a pair of uh, Nike runners, um, that's that's not disrupting me. I'm looking at, at his pro- at his profile and that's what he's what he's taking a picture of. That's so in other words, it's native account. to me. Correct. As yeah, exactly. Whatever your whatever your motive is, it's 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 part of your, it's part of what the content of your um, Instagram account. So if you if you were to compare the two, um, you're looking at about if I was to if I was to scale down the 2.5 million for the 1.1 billion to just an audience of 114 million, you're looking at about a cost of let's just divide it by. 10 and say that you're looking at a cost of $250,000 to reach the same audience as the Super Bowl. Um, have a guess at what a 30-second slot on the Super Bowl will cost you. Well, I'll answer, answer it for you. It's about $4.5 million. So you're roughly about 5% of the total spend um, to, to, get the, to get the same result. Huge difference And just this ad blocker stuff, let's talk about that for a second because ad blocker doesn't work on native... Yeah, no, I mean, well, that's, that's, that's the other thing. I, I feel like social media influences uh, one of the rare forms of advertising that isn't in danger of being displaced anytime soon. I was actually um, shot, you know, a techie friend of mine came over to my place the other day and installed Adblocker, you know, it's a plug-in for the Chrome browser that I use. And um, I was, pl- you know, pleasantly surprised to find out that not one single ad has gotten through to my computer um, ever since, since, since I've been browsing, since my friend came over and, you um, I don't see any, you know, that, that's a huge implication for internet advertising um, and traditional media. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, on-demand services that uh, like Templay and Jump In that, you know, really thrive on having those ads play to you during the time that you watch the shows. So, you know, having ad blocking technology in place there really disrupts certain traditional media business models. So, but what's the advantage, for example, of, um, uh, you know, like someone else, like say me, wearing a pair of Nike shoes on my Instagram? How does that blocker work or not work? Well, look, there may be a way in the future to to to, to mitigate you advertising via your Instagram account, but I look, I have a pretty sort of good working understanding of technology at the moment, and I don't see any danger of um, of me uh, of of the environment changing around you, know, you advertising via your Instagram account. So, then in other words, it should be. But what we're saying here, Nick, is that over time in social media advertising environments, that there is a, a lot of power going to be attached to individuals using right, their Instagram yeah. accounts or their Twitter accounts or whatever yep. it is to promote something as opposed to necessarily to advertise it. Let's call it a different word, but it is advertising, yeah, but it's to promote en- something. endorsement, yeah. Um, and, and these audiences have a, a particular relevance and resonance that you, you don't get via traditional media, you don't get by um, celebrity endorsement. These guys are experts in their niche. Um, you know, there's a girl out there called Kayla at Sinner. She's got 3.5 million Instagram followers that you know follow her purely based on her um, on her prowess in the fit, you know the physical fitness environment. I think she's a, a personal trainer by trade. Um, you know, tr- you know, can, Giselle Bunchen has around four million. Let's just say those two both try to advertise a pair of runners. Who do you think is going to get the, the most effective outcome for the um, for the company? Who would get the most money though? Definitely Giselle. <laughs> yeah, but not necessarily the greatest outcome for the advertiser. Definitely not, no. <clears throat> so, that, so what we're talking about is a mismatch here? That's right, huge disparity. Or even an arbitrage sort of thing, it's, uh, it's, yeah. but it's going to flip. The, you would expect it to flip. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not sure who's, you know, who's overpaid or underpaid, but there needs to be a convergence in the two, that's Well, sure. wouldn't you, you, you would, ex- I mean, I, normally these things would go to the lowest common denominator in terms of just uh, basic economics. Yeah. Um, so you would expect the flip to be Giselle Bunchen was soon getting me paid less. Yep. I mean that's just the way of the world today. I think so. Yeah, everything is it's if, competition. The people yeah. threatening her, um, her her position in the advertising world. Well, why do you think it is that advertisers haven't quite worked it out yet? Like, I mean, why hasn't the flip occurred? Is it because of the traditional media buyers are still pushing the traditional media? I mean, I mean, we're neither of us experts in this, and this is more poor Tom Sansom's there anyway. But um, you know, what do you think it is? I mean, you're a young guy. I mean, what do you think it is? Yeah, I guess, you know, maybe, you know, at the top tier advertising firms, you've still got a lot of older people calling the shots and, and making recommendations to their clients and maybe they haven't quite picked up on, on the trend just yet. Um, maybe the trend hasn't been around for long enough um, for it to, you know, really prove um, its worth. Um, 
Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think, you know, it's still yet to hit its straps. Maybe that's why it hasn't quite hit the scene just yet. I guess also you've got to be, we've got to be careful too on, what was the name of that young woman, the sportswoman you mentioned? Taylor at Sinus. I'm not that sure is- if I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. But- okay, but I mean, we've got to be careful what she's bought. I mean, we don't know how she's actually got her 3.9 million yep. followers at this stage. We don't know whether they're actual true followers. Oh, look, she's a, she's a, <clears throat> a personal trainer by trade, I d- you know, Gathering a following uh, by non-traditional means is fairly expensive, so I, I wouldn't imagine that you know she's out there acquiring users because that could be you know a big personal cost to herself. So uh, you know I'd, I'd be I'd be more um, tempted to say that she's she's gathered her following you know properly. So what does this mean then for businesses? So I'm a small business or a medium-sized business doesn't really matter. I'm a startup or I'm an entrepreneur trying to push my brand. Yeah. What do you think that means that? young startups, guys your age who are doing this stuff all the time, and I know you've done a startup. I mean, what does that mean in terms of your choices as to where you market your product and or brand? Yeah, I think it just means cheaper advertising, um, more optionality and, and more access to, to a marketing campaign where there wasn't one before. So when old dinosaurs like me get on there and talk about, you know, Channel 9 and advertising Channel 9 and doing 30-second ads, yep. what would you say to me? You're probably overpaying if you're advertising. And what would you say to me? Should I be adjuncting? Yeah, I think should I, I, should I be trying? Should I be trying to reweight? I mean, in other words, uh, try and get a, uh, a new mixed cost. In other words, by coming in with a much lower advertising cost in the Instagram or whatever it is, social media, and trying to um, uh, get a, a better cost mix by building the two together. Yeah, reweighting certainly, <clears throat> and, and maybe in some cases shifting the, the dominance of, of of the medium that you're using. Right. So, and, and because that's, I mean, you, you've got ad blockers, so you're not going to see my ads on, on uh, Jump In or wherever anyway. Uh, Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, but, but you're going to be doing that, but so how do I get to you? <clears throat> I mean, that's a, that's a good you're, question. You're blocking I mean, me out, like you're saying, yeah. fuck off. Yeah. So how do yeah. I get to you? Yeah, well, that's, 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 that's the thing that I worry about for traditional media is, is that, you know, peop- that, you know, technology, is, as much as it's a pro, is also shutting down um, the traditional audiences and, and forcing them into other areas. Um, so yeah, I, I, social media influencing, you know, just off, off the back of what I've been looking at over the last week, seems like one of the only mediums where it isn't exposed to, to, to threats like the, the, the technology is posing in traditional media. I mean, I mean, and I wonder whether this is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of debate, especially in Harvard Business Review of late, about whether or not this is proper disruption um, in other words, cheaper and more sustainable and um, using technology that's generally speaking not available to everybody. I mean, there's a big debate as, what, as to what is a, a perfect disruption. Mm. Uh, Christensen, who's the guy who came up with the concept originally, um, Professor Christensen, um, probably would say this is not proper disruption because that technology over time will be available to everybody. Yep. So one organisation will not be able to use it. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder whether or not... Uh, this is going to have a be a true disruption, or just a, or is this just going to be a shift? Seems like it's going to be more a shift. Yeah, I mean, all of these changes, you know, from what the experts are saying, are happening at a glacial pace. So, um, I don't think there's going to be an overnight shift to any one um, medium, nor is there going to be um, a shutdown of any particular um, media form based on its technology technological shortcomings. Um, but yeah, I think you know, gradually we will see a change and and. You know, to, to, to areas that aren't being threatened by technology. Okay. Well, that's bang, Nick. Got it, man. Good on you. Well done. Yes. With me today in the studio was Todd Sampson. I'm actually thrilled that he's here. He's the CEO of ad agency Leo, Leo Burnett. Um, you know him from the TV shows Grew and Planet, Grew and Transfer and The Project. And, of course, um, his skilled adventure, which I think is really cool. Um, I've been watching some of his episodes from Retrain My Brain, Redesign My Brain. It's a really um, cool series. Um, I I actually um, am always enamoured for people who can actually go out there and have enough courage to try and change the way they think and the way they then operate that physic in a physical sense and uh having climbed mount everest without a guide is pretty cool i don't know if i'd ever try that one um my insurance policy wouldn't let me anyway um and todd's also fascinated well not only fascinated he's actually become to some extent an expert in the functionality of the brain and neuroscience is a big interest of mine um neuroplasticity is a big interest of mine it's part of neuroscience and that's something todd and i've talked about in the in the past 
um, and neuroplasticity has become such an important part of behavioural psychology and how we, in business sense, how we actually get ourselves to do things and how we appeal to others. It's actually an important way to understand our environment. And Todd actually having his roots in advertising, that's exactly what advertisers do. They're not selling ads on television. They're actually trying to work out a way to communicate with you, connect with you, and or perhaps even change the way you behave or influence the way you behave. Always in a good way, of course, Todd. So it's great that he's here. I really want to have a mag to him. Um, I think we should talk about redesign my brain. I mean, whose idea was that, man? Yeah, it was originally a guy called Paul Scott. So he had um, he had this rough idea on focusing on the science of the brain, how the brain changes. And the premise of the show, which is a remarkable premise, and it's a revolution that most people don't even know about, is that for nearly 70 years, science told us that our brain was fixed. You're born with what you have. That develops rapidly up until the age seven. It then sort of peaks at 30 and then steady decline for the rest of your life. And now the new science has come out and said that's absolutely false. In fact, you can positively correct your brain at any age, whether you're 80, whether you're 15. And that revolution is happening. A lot of people don't even know about it. Like a lot of people don't know that this exists. It is phenomenal to think about. We carry around in our head arguably the most sophisticated thing in the known universe, and we know very little about it. So given that we can change it, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, like, A, what do you mean by it? And B, what's the process you've experienced? Yeah, so you can do many things. So you can improve your speed of thinking, you can increase your memory, you can, uh, you, you know, your processing speed can go, your attention control can be changed. So there's many, many things you can do with your brain. What, you're, what you, it rewires. So faced with any task whatever that task might be. It could be a business task. It could be a personal life challenge. Your brain is remarkable in that it will rewire to achieve that task. Now, the caveat to that is bar any kind of anatomical disorder. Like if you have some kind of anatomical disorder. Like brain damage. Yes. Caused that's by quite trauma, difficult. Et yeah. But with that said, <laughs> when I was filming the first series of Readers on My Brain, I met a young man who had one third of his brain removed. So it was removed because he was having epileptic seizures. He was seeing demons, actually. He would be lying on the ground seeing demons. The doctor said, the only way to help you is to remove three, uh, you know, a third of your brain. And when I met him, so he lost everything. He lost his ability to speak because his language went. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't read. When I met him, probably six years after that, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. He was slightly unique. You could tell that, but you wouldn't know. He had retrained his brain. It rewired on the other two-thirds, and he was completely functional, one-third missing. Well, let's get inside the head, the brain, for a start, for, for a second. Let's just, when we talk about plasticity, which basically means change. Yes. You know, coming from the Greek word. Yes. Um, <laughs> Nick, my son, Nick, over there is laughing his head off because, you know, that, that my big fat Greek wedding, everything sort of has derivation from the Greek word. Plastic, but anyway, doesn't matter. It's a different joke. So, point being here is the point being here is in terms of plasticity, we are talking about neurons. Our brain is full of neurons, neurons, and the neurons. Let's let's imagine them like little wriggly little bits of wire mm. hanging down, and they all connect in various ways yes. through. What I think the process is called synapses. Synapses. Yeah. So, plasticity is about changing the way they interconnect and also building those neurons. To, to operate a different way or a new way or an additional way. Yes. So could you now explain to the people listening and to me what you understand to be plasticity? What is neuroplasticity? Obviously, some do with the brains, but what is plasticity? Yeah. So plasticity is based off the notion of plastic. It's mm. not fixed. It's not mm. hard. It's not like a machine. Mm-hmm. It can adapt and change. And the best uh, analogy or metaphor that I've, I've heard for it is like a highway. As, as, as we grow in our brain, we have multiple, multiple highways. And for many people, they, the, the neurons travel on a fixed highway for most of their lives. But you can change the highways, but most people don't. So most people travel their entire lives on, they, they don't have, they don't adapt too much. They, it's fixed. So, but you can have new roads, you can reconnect roads, and that's plasticity. So it's a rewiring. And there's a couple of really, really fundamental ways of doing that. Uh, one 
excellent, one of the best uh, techniques around is meditation. Uh, Non-denominational, but meditation is an extremely, extremely good brain training uh, exercise. Attention control is another really, really, really excellent way of uh, retraining uh, retraining your brain. Uh, And forced adaptation, which you do a lot of, but is put yourself in unfamiliar situations and allow your brain to cope with it. Most brain adaptation takes place outside our comfort zone. But for most people, they don't travel outside their comfort zone. For example, you did it. You climbed a rock face. Yes. Now, what I thought was fascinating about that is um, the lady. You remind me of a name again. So, yeah, yeah. She was uh, she was an unbelievable uh, climber. So I, I basically went to the Utah desert, mm-hmm. and I climbed uh, a hundred and fifty meter rock face uh, without without sight. Blindfolded. And uh, blindfolded. And were you th- climbing? Uh, no, I had two. I had two climbers. Uh, one climber up and a climber shooter above me who was okay. filming the whole thing. And the premise, uh, the premise of it was: what happens to the brain if you take away one of its senses? So does the brain adapt? So would I get heightened in other senses, or would it just be a train wreck? Uh, and uh, so that was the, the the test. Like, was it going to be a tra- so? I must say, after 20 minutes, and the guy, the, the scientist at Harvard said it would happen, but it was all theory until that point. They said that the brain will adapt without sense, quick time, within 30 minutes, their studies have shown. Uh, so I must say, though, I was on that rock face for nearly six hours, and, uh, and it took a little bit of time uh, and a lot of pain in my head because I couldn't see what was above me, so I whacked my head a lot on things. That, but I adapted. But what, what, and what's interesting about that is um, her analogy, which I thought I found fascinating, she said the rock face will never change. Yes. And if you want to get to the top with blindfolded or otherwise, you have to change. Yes. So what you're – and physically – you have to change physically. And what I mean by that is actually put your foot here and your hand here and you have to feel something and, you know, transfer weight, et cetera. And the only way you're going to do that is if your brain tells your body to do that. Yes. You have to get your brain into order. Hmm. So what, what was the process over the six weeks? But that that's you- a, Mark, that's another great example of forced adaptation. So I was clearly outside my comfort zone. There are a lot of other things you can do, like juggling is excellent. It's really difficult for a lot of people, and it's uh, multi-object tracking, which is a really, really good thing to do. Uh, there's you know brushing your teeth or doing stuff with your non-dominant hand. Your brain is immediately going, oh. I do that every morning. I, I actually do things with my left hand. Yeah. Or, or boxers that switch, that go from southpaw to orthodox, and it, it's just a complete year. You're a completely different fighter because your brain is rewiring to, f- to cope with that unfamiliarity. So there are lots of the practical things you can do in your life. Uh, the other two that are amazing for your brain is uh, learning a new language. It's really good to do as you age because mm. you're really good at it when you're younger because your adaptation is quicker. But when you're older, it's much more difficult. And a musical instrument is excellent. I was going to say brain. that about piano. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if Nick, I don't know if you, did you do any piano? I did violin. Violin, okay. So yeah. all, all the other boys, I always made them do piano because I always took the view that I think none of them were going to become a, a pianist. Um, that's for sure. I did piano as a as a as a young man, well, right through to I was the age of eighteen. Um, and I think that it's I, the thing about piano. I think it makes good mathematicians, and I don't know why. It's just mm-hmm. a view I have, um, but because it's very uh, it's very structured. Yes. And I think it's important for young people, boys and girls, to learn the musical language. Mm. There is a language of music, and I think it's so important because mm. I think it does develop their brain. My mum made me do it. I would never have done it. I went to school out of Lakemba, and it uh, wasn't a cool thing to play piano. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah. Very uncool. Yeah. Uh, but um, I did it sort of secretly. Um, so I did my practice at home, and I went to a special place to have my lessons. No one at school knew I was doing it. Um, but but, but I, music was an important thing. And now I'm no, I'm no musician, that's for sure, but... That's another example of learning a language. Music is a language. Is that, is that what language, you're talking about? And, it's, and it, it's such complex. It requires such high brain power to actually do it well. And the, the unique thing about the piano is the multiple hand movement. I mean, it's, it's juggling. right going at the same time. It's juggling, you know, horizontal. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's horizontal juggling. But what, so one of the keys to uh, achieving the climb and achieving the wire walk, the skywalk, it, one of them, which I highly – so meditation is what would be my number one recommendation to most people. It doesn't need to be complicated, but it's really good training. So j- just on meditation, just give me an example of what you're talking about here now. So if, if someone said to me – like I get asked a lot by young people what, you know, what's my recommendation to help them succeed in business and do – I and it always throws them off. And I say 10 minutes in the morning of quiet. And they go, really? 
how about studying, you know, the digital landscape? And I'm like, not 10 minutes in the morning, quiet. So 10 minutes of breathing, that's it. It doesn't have to be anything special. It doesn't have to be anything unique. Just uh, for a lot of people, count their breaths. Uh, up, up one, down two, go to 10. When you lose your attention, go back to one again and keep doing it. And try to, you know, eventually you'll be able to do 10 minutes of that. Which is the basic premise of yoga. Basic premise of, of 3,000 years of, of, you know, tradition. It's funny, it's a basic premise of boxing too. Yeah, just breathing, breathing, mind body, your mind body control, and and a lot of it. Unfortunately, for a lot of people have religious associations with it, so they turned off of it immediately. They, but they they should see it as brain training, that because it is brain training, and it's just it does one of the best skills you could have in business uh, is attention control, the ability to focus, listen and focus, because most people are not actually listening; they're not taking the information in; they're waiting to speak, and Attention control is an amazing skill. It's the basis of learning. It's it's the basis of education. But we are really bad at it. It's funny, you say, because I did I did an episode on this uh, conversations about. Uh, it's just one of those things that was in my mind uh, about most people that I meet who are very successful are very good at promoting the thing that they're very successful at mm. because they're not actually talking to me; they're having a conversation with themselves. And, um, and we all do it, and I'd say you're one of them too. Um, I do it. Um, I continually reinforce in my mind the thing that I'm trying to promote to myself yes. by having conversations with other people mm. when I don't really care whether listening or not. I'm actually just practising all the time mm. what it is I'm trying to prosecute, whatever it is. And I think that's a really important technique to become good at something. Mm. And then we talk about... Um, you know, the so-called 10,000-hour theory. Mm. I mean, that's probably, which is basically was a, uh, the test came out as an application against uh, musicians, violinists, in fact, in, the, uh, in Berlin. Um, that's an example of, to me, of neuroplasticity mm. is that is the more you train purposefully yep. and the more you meditate on it and practice it because, you know, vi- playing a violin is meditational. Mm the better you become at it. Mm. But I would say on the 10,000 hours, uh, I think a lot of people confuse that to 10,000 hours to be uh, good at, to, to be good at something versus to be an expert. So mm. I, I want to do a show called 10,000 Minutes because I think science has accelerated learning dramatically. What would take 10 years, 10 years ago, yeah, yeah. you can now do in an incredibly short period of time because our knowledge and our preciseness of information has is, is changed. And what we under, how we understand the brain and how it works and how the connection to the body has changed. So now we have what's referred to as accelerated learning. And for most things, not to become an expert, but you can learn it very, very fast. So meditation, Mark, would be my number one recommendation, my second recommendation, visualize. Well, okay, med- where, where, where do you learn meditation? I mean, uh, how, you can... How do you, how do you become... How do you meditate? You just learn off the internet? I mean, how's it work? Yeah, get it down on an app. I know it yep. sounds very today, uh, but uh, there's plenty of apps. Uh, one I use is Headspace. It's uh, English... Um, um, app. It's really, really good. There's plenty of them. Uh, I'm listening now in my car on a podcast uh, to Tara Brock, who is amazing. She's a, a very famous American meditator and she's got a great... So there's plenty, but it's not complicated. You know, basically, concentrate on your breath, relax your body, sit mm. quietly for 10 minutes in the morning, starting off. Try to count your breath up, down to 10. Do it a couple of times. Is there any science about doing first thing in the morning or is it just convenient? It's just the best thing? Uh, well, it's at a time when you can be quiet. And it, it, for a lot of people, it's a great way to start the day. Some people use it to help them sleep. And you so don't have to go and join a yoga school. You don't have to levitate. No. This is just something you can do anytime, anywhere on yeah, your own. That's right, on your own. And you know, and it's, it's very good under pressure. So in business, when you're in negotiations and you feel, oh, this is not going well, instead of moving into reactive mode, as most people do, mm. because the, one of the keys to negotiation is never get to positions. So stay at interests and negotiate on interests. As soon as you get to positions where Mark Boris says, I want this, and I'm sure you've done it quite a few times, and this guy goes, I want this. You're dead. You're dead. It's not going to work. You have to stay at interests. Meditation, quiet yourself down and relaxing for a moment. Having the pause before you react to what they say could make, could save you or make you millions of dollars. So there's no point in arm wrestling with the Dalai Lama then. No, there's no point time wrestling with Dalai Lama. But just to, just to, if, if you haven't seen the show, meditation can also help with pain. So I did yep. this, uh, I was in Boulder, which is an amazing place to go. I was in Boulder with the world's best neuroscientist of pain. He put me, he put a, basically connected an iron to my leg and he put me in arguably the world's most advanced brain scanner. So th- what they were going to do is they're going to turn this, turn, the, turn this iron on. 
watch my brain signature. Mm -hmm. So they would get me to report how I felt, which is my normative feeling, which mm -hmm. is obviously biased because I'm toughing it out. And then they would just say what actually happened in my brain. So they did that test. It was pretty painful. Uh, then they I redid that and I meditated. And my pain signature, so my independent brain view of what had happened, my pain signature dropped by 70%. So what were the three things, I think it was two or three things, that they asked you two or three things to concentrate on when you felt the pain. Yes. In other words, it's not pain. or what, yeah. what were The main thing was acceptance. acceptance. I, I know yeah. you know this as a fighter, as a boxer, I'm that just, you, 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 have to, you, you have to accept the pain. Yeah. And, and, and when you relate to the pain, in, not necessarily in a positive way, and by the way, I'm not saying that for people with seriously long-term chronic pain that meditation is a cure-all because it's not, but it can certainly help, and the science has shown that. Uh, you need to accept the pain. When you see it differently, so we were just discussing before the show came on, you were discussing boxing and how you're, you're so used to being hit that you, your, your whole version of pain when it comes – most people would think that is incredibly painful. You're getting hit a lot. You see that as part of what you do, as part of the skill mm. of fighting. Uh, that's training. That's brain training over time. Uh, it's the same with other pains. When you relate to that pain in a more positive or even neutral way, it changes the pain. Which is why a lot of people walk around in pain, but they've got so used to it, they've accepted it, and it's no longer as chronic as it is for somebody who just gets introduced to that new pain. What, hap what happened with the MRI? What did it show on your brain? It showed, a, it, well, first it showed my brain went a bit, well, first it showed it had some kind of weird indication of my ego and me trying to be stoic because I was saying the pain was a one out of 10 yeah. and my brain was going, 30. it's a seven yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And they were going, okay, <laughs> so this guy is saying it doesn't hurt, but it does hurt. So that was one thing. And, so it, and it showed was, a red blotch in yeah, part of your brain. It, it was quite it, a large red yeah, blotch. It showed the blood flow and what actually happened. Then with the meditation, I mean, I was stunned. I, I mean, I was stunned. It I, actually went around the other way. I think it showed something like one as the actual pain. So the the red marking, which is uh, which the MRI picked up, went shrunk to an orange colour mm. or even a yellow colour, mm. which meant you had a le lot less blood and the area that was covered was a lot less as well. Yes. So actually it was a real physical change mm. as a result of this thinking, meditating on a certain on certain aspects mm. when the pain was applied to you. And it was the same level of pain. Same level of pain. And he – so it, and they factored in – the learning effect. So they factored in the. I, I kind of knew what the pain was like. I so what did he add to it? Three uh, percent. It was more than three percent. Yeah, it was. It was an increase yeah, in the actual increase. pain. So actually he knew. He knew. So I mean, he Tor has been studying pain. He's, he's a brilliant uh, scientist. He's been studying pain his whole career. So be, so that's just one example of the power of meditation, and I, I highly recommend it. Like for, even to contrast the scientist, I had a former commando, Paul Kale, in the series as well. And when I asked him, and he doesn't know the science, and, you know, he did six tours and, you know, he was in Iraq three times. And when I asked, and he's got six black belts and different martial arts, and when I asked him about pain, he basically said the same thing as Tor, without having known anything what Tor was going to say. He said the same thing in a different way. He said, you need to contextualize pain. And his whole thing was, which did freak me out a little bit, he said, if you're going to get cut, if you're in battle and you're going to get cut, you would rather be cut in the arm than cut in the heart. So in some ways, the superficial wound is good, isn't it? And I'm like, uh, I don't think that's good. And he goes, it's good comparatively, isn't Relatively it? Relatively speaking. Yeah. And I said, well, yeah, it is. And he goes, well, that's how you have to see it. That you took the cut here and it's okay. You can continue your mission and take that soldier out if you have to. So just but to explain to him, because I mean, maybe some people haven't watched it, but I saw it. So he had a... A, a, Shock knife. Yeah, which is an electric knife. Yes. It looked like a, a, a big knife and, and it gave an electric shock and the, the sensation of the electricity from that knife felt like you'd been cut. Cut, yes. Right. So he, first off, what happened to you? Yeah, so I didn't know this was happening, by the way, so this was all outside of my knowledge. So you're standing on a square? I'm, sta I'm, in, I'm in the AIS in Canberra and this big guy comes in, huge, and he shakes my hand, and I knew from the handshake. I went, okay, this is not going to be good. It was like grabbing a rock. I thought, this is not going to be good. He introduced himself to me, and I thought we were going to do some kind of combat. And I thought, that's fine. I could do some combat. He'll throw me around and stuff. And then he pulled out a knife. And I thought, oh, God, this is not good. And then he turned on the knife. And the knife had high voltage, just enough to make it feel like I've been cut open, but not enough to permanently damage me. So just on that boundary line. And he turned it to three. He turned it to full bore. 
And he just stuck me with it, and it was it was pretty painful. He chased I, you around the mat. He chased me because he said, "Don't go off the mat." Yeah. And then you know, off camera, he was going, "Ah, oh, yeah, little girl, you they didn't hurt that much." And I, I was totally in shock. Right? I, I literally, I mean, you know, pardon the pun, but he he was sticking me, and he had me down. And he was jabbing me, and all this. It was pretty full on. And as a as a you know as a six march six belts, he had no problem containing me and sticking me. Uh, but he then taught me, like the scientist really, on how to contextualize the pain. And then he redid the thing to me. And he, he made me think it's more important to absorb a little bit of pain to survive than it is to worry about how much that hurts. And we went through an exercise and we did that together. It, it sort of like stopped you from panicking. Yeah. He, he controlled your panic. His whole thing is about putting pain in context, which is exactly what Tor said. He called it acceptance. Uh, Paul Kale would never say acceptance, uh, but he called it context. He said, soldiers put pain in context. They don't run away from it. They see it as a, as a part of what they do, but they, put the, they don't treat it as this huge enemy that's sitting on the mountain. They treat it as part of their craft, just like you were talking about fighting. And, and what he did was he showed you some crafts. He said, okay, if you can take this bit of pain, I'll show you a skill whereby you, Todd, can effectively disarm him, but you had to grab him by one arm while you might be getting cut on the other arm. Yes. And he showed you the skill. Without the ability to contextualise the pain, you would never have been able to apply the skill. Yes. That's the whole point. And what's interesting about this is in business are the same. And we had Richard DeCrepney in here who is, um, who is the Qantas captain who um, in crisis management, when that Qantas plane engines caught fire, he was able to land that plane back into Singapore airport and preserved everybody's lives and, uh, and, and did a brilliant job at it. And it was crisis management. And really what you're talking about here is crisis management. Yes. Crisis, this is a physical crisis, but crisis management is about contextual, contextualising everything or accepting everything as it is and then going through a process, whether it's an application of a skill like you did in the gym with pulling the guy down or whether it's like uh, what Richard DeCrepney did when he just went through a process of all his training about how to land that plane properly – that crisis management process, the acceptance of the crisis and then going through a process is what people need to apply to business. Yes. All of us in business, small business, doesn't matter whether you're filming a new series or you're doing whatever you're doing, you know, you're, you're, you're at Leah Burnett's and you've got a problem, you've got a problem client, we all have to accept the, the problem's a problem mm. and then manage our way through it mm. based on the skills we've developed and or other people's skills that they can bring to the party. And I think business people need to... Understand this. this is really important for business people to understand. We've got 2.4 million small business owners in this country, small to medium business owners in the country. Nobody ever talks to them. That's the whole uh, purpose of this show is actually to talk to these guys and bringing someone in like you who's larger than life in all of their minds because they all, all would know who you are, for you to be able to sort of say to them, look, just accept the process mm. and understand the process, uh, sorry, accept the situation and then work your way through it. That's how you survive. Yeah. And it's worth, in that context, it is worth talking about fear, yep. be, which is my favorite subject. Uh, and in, it was the last episode of the last series I did, which was concentrating pretty much on fear. And we all know that small business owners, they deal with some of the most fearful situations on many levels, financial, emotional, ego, putting yourself out there. Owners of businesses are very different than people that run businesses. Uh, they are fully exposed, and they're constantly balancing this sort of fear, success, fear, success, fear, success. And often fear, though, is misinterpreted. So I was fortunate enough to see it through the lens of science and what it means and how it works. And sometimes, again, putting fear in context, because big decisions uh, affect your life, affect your finances, affect your future. There's one thing in common with all those decisions. Fear. And, and you know this, Mark. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the decisions I, I you've made in your life, I would, I'd be willing to bet right now, every major decision you have made in your life, and you've made a lot of them, have had one, at least one thing in common, and that's fear. Well, I always take the view, of, unless I am a bit nervous about something and a bit fearful, I'm probably not making the right, I'm not actually making the right decision. Because if I make something that's around the other way, I'm not taking enough a bet of a bet. And, and so with that, I, I would just say that, first of all, we now know, the science has shown, that everyone is dealing with fear. There are no exceptions. There is no such thing as fearless. Fearless is just lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they often say confidence is this false illusion mm -hmm. of everything's okay. So we're all dealing with fear. And, but for some people, it can confine their businesses. And that's a shame because it doesn't need to. Because what makes us unique, one of the unique things that humans have over all other species is that we can feel fear 
and then go through it. Where every other animal feels fear and instinctually needs to react. Well, we can go, okay, I feel that. I know the risk I'm about to take with this business is big, but I'm going to take the next step forward where every other species would never be able to do that. So, and, and the one thing around fear is that we are born with it. So it's okay. Like the amygdala, which is in the brain, the fear response unit, it's, it's often referred to as, it's not a blank slate. We're not born blank in the amygdala. We're born with fear of, of, of falling, a fear of loud noise and fear of heights. Those fears already exist. I did the test when my youngest daughter, Jet, was born. I uh, did the startle. It's called a moral reflex, but it's often referred to as the startle reflex. She was two hours old. I had her in my arms. My wife wasn't looking because she was in her own situation uh, at that stage. And I let her head go. And she just completely startled, like threw her arms up, head forward. Now, she doesn't know the concept of fear. She's two hours old. So how did she do that? It's innate. It's born. It, she has it already. We have it in us. So this whole notion that people, I'm fearless or, you know, I don't feel fear rubbish. is rubbish. Yeah, yeah. It's a lie. And, and so two of the best ways of overcoming fear, one I've already explained, meditation, and the second one is visualizing. Now, if you look at the most successful people in the world across businesses, most of them meditate in some way. It might be what you do, which is meditation through motion, through, through exercise and fitness, but they meditate in some way, and a lot of them visualize. They visualize the outcome. They visualize the meeting. You know that thing we often say to people when they're going into negotiation? We say to them, you need to visualize the outcome. You need to think about how you want that meeting to end before you step in, mm. and there's a higher chance of you getting there than you just walking in the room. Visualization is as powerful a tool for business people as meditation would be. I hear guys in the gym do it. They visualize lifting a weight before they lift the weight. Mm. This visualization process is very powerful. So what would be your one piece of advice to, in terms of fear, the fear factor, what would be your one piece of advice to business owners? I mean, what, would you, what would you say to them about how you deal with fear? And I, I, I mean, because fear to me is the greatest thief of imagination there yes. is. We lose our imagination when, we, when we're fearful. Yes. And which means we can't navigate and create a way out of a problem. What would you say? Yeah, I, I have a presentation that I give around this notion of five minutes, and this is what I say to a lot of business owners, is that first of all, recognizing and understanding that you're afraid is really good. It's good. It's a sign of strength, not of weakness. A lot mm. of people think, you know, A-type personalities think, oh, if I said I was afraid, that's, it's a sign of strength. It's a sign of, self, of self-understanding, you know, and awareness. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, often when it comes to decision-making in business, the difference between good and great can be five minutes, can be just holding out a bit longer, not caving into your fear. Just, I mean, a lot of decisions that I've made in business, I've just held out longer. I just have not caved into it and the doors opened up and things changed. So I, I, my recommendation I always say to business people is do not go with your first feeling when you're afraid. Hold, hold, think about it. The overnight test, right, the science has now shown they're three to one more effective doing the overnight test. So overnight test people that say, ah, oh, let's sleep on it. Three to one than those that don't. So my all- Much more effective. Much more sleep effective. On sleep on it. One, consolidation of memories and the brain works. It does a lot of its plasticity at night. But give yourself a gap. And I call it the five minutes. So if you're making a big business decision and you're scared and you know it's a big risky decision- Do not cave into the first thing that comes, which is don't do it. And there is something comforting in knowing that when faced with risky decisions in business, well over the majority of people will err on the side of conservatism. I don't mind sharing with anyone who's listening to me, but I I mean, I'm like you. I'm I'm like you were saying. I have fears. I'm I'm, I'm not fearful, not full of fear, but I will admit that I get scared of things that are happening around me, especially stuff I can't control. Mm. And I have this view that I just take a view that I'll only – Think about those things I can control and those things I can't control I won't think about. Yep. My greatest fear is failing my investors. So I have these listed public companies who, where people have put money in, particularly, you know, little investors. To them it's a big investment but, you know, small investors. And uh, I don't and, – and they put the money – I'm worried that they will lose their money. Mm. That's, that's my biggest fear in life, failing them. But it's um, also f- – knowing you for a long time what you've done, it's also fuel for you. I mean, that, that, makes me, that makes you go. Yeah. That makes me work harder. That makes me never give up. That makes me just keep on it. What is yours? Or maybe one of yours? Uh, 
I've got I've got quite a few fears. Uh, my wife Naomi's one of them. She's pretty full on. She's a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, so I get nervous when she gets angry. Uh, f- failure. So, I think coming from a, you know a relatively uh, not well-off family in Canada, uh, my father worked in a factory. My mother was a checkout girl at KFC. I've my whole life I've tried to. I think I've chased this insecurity race, you know, not, not, I remember my dad saying to me once, he shook my hand and he was a factory worker. All I remember with my dad is taking off his boots at night. Like I remember him unlacing his, his steel toe boots at night. And I remember once he, he shook my hand and then he, he, he turned my hand over and his hand was all full of calluses and it was just a mess. And he said, Todd, use your brain. You don't need to be doing this stuff. And I think I've chased that my whole life. And so I still, and I've had okay success in my life. I still don't see myself that way. I see myself as the kid from that family still trying to do right. You know? and that's a funny thing you say because I'm exactly the same. Mm. I, I, a lot of people think of lots of things about me, but I still see myself as the kid from West Suburbs of Sydney. Mm. And I, I mean, I'm not, not sure if I'm insecure, but if it's an insecurity thing, but I'm scared that all the things that I have will be taken away from yeah. me. And it's, it's nearly like I don't deserve them. Yeah. And it's not real. It's, yeah. it's not mine. And, in fact, I don't even think of things as mine as such because I didn't grow up in that environment. So Yeah, my... people, people, when people play back, when I get most embarrassed is when people do read my CV or my introduction out if you're doing a speech and I'm listening to it and I'm going, oh, that all just seems so temporary to me. Like it, yeah, yeah. I don't see myself through that lens. I still see myself as struggling to get things that I want to get in my life. And, you know, but when, I, when someone else reads your bio back to you, you go, oh, wow, there's a did lot I do of that? stuff there. Yeah. Well, we, we, because we, we, I dismiss it anyway. And I, I, I did, I wrote a book called uh, uh, What It Takes oh, a couple, two years ago. And the thing that drives me is I'm just always still surviving. The way I look in my life is every day is a day of survival. Mm. And that's, as a business guy, that's what, then that's what I say to small business owners. Just look at today's today. You're going to survive today. You're mm. going to do what it takes to survive today. Don't worry about tomorrow or the next week or the month after or what happened yesterday. Today is your day of survival. And I think it's like a basic instinct that we all have. If we go back you know, a million years, that's probably what we're doing on a daily basis. We, we didn't get eaten, and then we could get something to eat. Now, I think if we can just do that in a basic sense, that's a good way to run a business. Don't try to be Mr. Successful yeah. and, uh, or benchmark yourself against this guy, that woman, and I'm going to do better than him, or I'm going to have this car, or I'm going to have that house. Those things come, I think, over time. You can't influence those things. They come over time. But the real success is, can you survive daily? Yeah. Is that something you enjoy? Yeah, I mean, you just reminded me of uh, Ed, Ed Hillary, who was one of my heroes. And uh, he didn't make many quotes, but people quoted him. They took his words and they put quotes around it and said, this is Ed Hillary. But most of it was just him talking. Uh, and uh, one I do remember him saying, uh, and I was fortunate enough to meet him before he died and, and before I went to Everest. And, and he said that... Um, People don't, people don't set out to be remarkable. They set out to do remarkable things. And I think that's pretty wise advice is don't concentrate on you and who you are. Mm. Concentrate on doing something amazing. And for small business owners, they're doing that. They're some of the biggest risk takers around. You, I mean, we look at, high, I, mean I'm, I end up doing things like climbing or high wire walking and stuff. But the real risk is to put yourself, your family, your mortgage, you, you know, in many cases, your ego on the line, on the line. to create something successful. And, uh, but the goal is not for you. The, the goal is not for you to be successful. That's a byproduct of you trying to do something great. And for most people, they have a mission with their small businesses. And that mission is worth a lot. You know, if that drives you, that is worth a lot. I could sit here and listen to you for hours, but Todd Sampson, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. You're welcome. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au.